Good afternoon, good evening. This is Dove Tuzman, and you are on equal footing. Tonight's show promises to be a little bit of a change of pace, a little bit fun, I hope. We're calling it, we're calling it, it's a series, and the series is, uh, The Jewish Show of Why. <laughs> it's a riff on a book that some of you may know came out, it was a two-volume series by a rabbi named Alfred Kolach, came out about maybe 20 years ago called The Jewish Book of Why, and it was, I think, the first time someone with a bit of a sense of humor, a bit tongue-in-cheek, took on all sorts of questions, prevalent misconceptions, misunderstandings that surround Jewish observance, and took like a bit of tongue-in-cheek, unfettered look at the biblical, historical, and superstitious reasons even that uh, certain rituals have developed over time in Jewish life and Jewish law and Jewish custom and really make Judaism not just a religion but a way of life. And I want to be clear that tonight's show is not just for Jewish listeners. If anything, it's more intended for the non-Jewish listener or perhaps the Jewish listener who doesn't remember everything they learned in Hebrew school, or as time has gone on, has gotten more uh, intrigued by certain rituals that, that that we have in our in our way of life. And I am happy that a an orthodox, thoughtful, Talmudic teacher and rabbi has agreed to join us tonight to really balance out what I think will be uh, my betraying some of my ignorance. I'm Jewish, as many listeners know, but I don't have that that type of yeshivish uh, background, that 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 learned background in in the in the nooks and crannies of the Jewish way of life. And Rabbi Joseph Isaac Korf has agreed to join us and have this discussion and provide the uh, counterpoint, the erudite perspective, the the well of knowledge. Rabbi Korf was on the show. Uh, on equal footing once before last year, really interesting discussion uh, with, uh, as I recall, a, a reverend and a Buddhist as Zen master. So Rabbi Korf is really open to getting into these multi-jurisdictional um, conversations, you know, about faith and also in pra- and, and how it touches practical life. Rabbi Korf has been teaching Talmudic studies and Jewish law since the late 1980s. He attended yeshiva and rabbinical school in the New York area. Also spent a year in Israel. Since 1990, he's been the Chabad Lubavitch emissary. That's a perhaps the largest um, progressive Orthodox missionary organization in the world. Chabad. Many of you probably heard of it. And he's based in Hollywood, Florida, where he's the spiritual leader of the Hollywood Community Synagogue. Rabbi Korf, as I alluded to, also works with non-Jews. He teaches the seven universal no-hide laws and fosters close relationships with seekers from all faiths. Good good on you, Rabbi Korf. And he's got two sons and five grandchildren. Actually, I think six now. Right, Rabbi? <laughs> Are you there? What's the grandchildren yeah. count? Can I inherit six? Thank God. Thank God. Rabbi Korf, it's great to have you on the show, and let, let's start by acknowledging for, I don't want anybody to take this, uh, let's say too lightly or too seriously. What I mean by too lightly is we are going to ask questions that merit real, uh, thought. Sometimes they, the answers will be unexpected. Uh, even in our pregame, I asked Rabbi Korf, don't tell me the answers, but I'll tell you some of the questions I'm going to ask. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, so, 
the, these these do these questions that we'll 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 get into tonight do reflect real real issues sometimes we have on our path of faith as Jews and maybe folks that are not Jewish looking in on the path you know are quizzical about but also I don't want people to take it too seriously either in the sense the intent here is not to provide a strict interpretation of Jewish law I'm sure Rabbi Korf would be the first to say that you know there are areas in which you know he he would not want to uh to step into as an as an expert as erudite as he is and it isn't to tow a particular line. You know, Judaism, like so many walks of life, is filled with different perspectives. There are different sects. There are different ways of interpreting uh, Jewish law or halacha. There are different customs that are outside of the the legal prescriptions. And so the idea is here to, is to have, the idea here is to have a, an open and, and uh, free-form conversation. And in that light, Rabbi Korf, when I was researching for this show, I came across what may be the best statistic I've ever come across studying for shows uh, uh, for this program for Equal Footing. That is that there was a Pew study, the Research Institute Pew, back in 2013 that was considered the most compre- comprehensive psych- psychological and sociological study of Jewish life in America. And one of the uh, questions that would a- was asked was a multiple choice around what are the essential elements of being Jewish and the single highest response was having a good sense of humor. That was 42% of, of Jewish respondents said having a good sense of humor is the most essential part of being Jewish. Just by contrast, 19% said observing Jewish law was the essential part of being Jewish. <laughs> uh, I, I thought that was... Uh, a, a good segue into our conversation. Do you agree? Yeah, you actually, you actually uh, just made me laugh when you said that. Actually, um, hello. Yeah, yeah, well, you're on. Hello. Yeah, I'm sorry. Are you here? Yeah, we can hear you. So you made me laugh actually when you asked that question. And although I'm not a comedian or a uh, um, poll taker, but I can say perhaps. On the light side, as you said, um, perhaps one of the reasons I believe that Jews would say that is because the truth is Jews always did have a great sense of humor. And uh, imagine all the things Jews lived through and went through through all the centuries and millennia, and yet somehow they always kept their uh, their humor up. And they always had the ability to make others laugh Laugh maybe more even in the, and you know, the, it's interesting. There's a principle in the Talmud that says that, um, before one of the great sages would give his Talmudic class, he would open up with a joke and the sages would laugh and then they would go into the details and the deep and the delving into the depths of the Talmud. And the reason it explains is because when you're able to make people laugh, it gives them sort of like an expansiveness, a, a, an openness, an ability to receive better, right. uh, to listen better, to talk more. And that's why this is something which, yeah, to, to laugh. Although, by the way, you will notice that uh, King David says in Psalms that one should not sit amongst uh, a people of uh, jokers, of scorners. In other words, to just sit and laugh for no reason is also not necessarily, according to Jewish law, the right thing to do. Nevertheless, to laugh for a purpose, 
to well, ask to bring to ask to bring more joy to others and to be, bring to a deeper joy uh, is definitely something which is worthwhile and should be done and to give help and joy to the world and to other people. Yeah, that's what we'll try to do a little bit uh, of tonight. It reminds me on, of the philosophy of Viktor Frankl, who wrote In Man's Search for Meaning, and it's about his uh, journey through the Holocaust and finding meaning in, even in the darkest of times and repeatedly pointing out that even in absolute darkness there was an opportunity for uh, seeing beauty and uh, and smiling. So it's 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 critical to uh, to to do that even in the darkest of of times. In that by that in, in that vein, you know, Rabbi Korf, the first question that we that I have for you actually has to do. Before with you ask me a first, before you ask me a question, yeah. I just want to say to you, you mentioned Victor Frankl. I don't know if you know that he has a very close relate. There was a close relationship with Chabad to Victor Frankl. And to, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe to Victor Frankl, famous story. Yes, yes, uh, of, of interaction. Let, let's get let's get to that in a different show because I do want to do a show in the future about the history of Chabad and its importance in the Jewish world. But here's a question about laughter and the opposite, and and and, and, and ruefulness and uh, sorrow. I've seen it referred to. I've seen it quoted and said that in a funeral procession in a, Jew, a Jewish funeral procession that you, it is okay to uh, smile or laugh but but not to cry where does that come from is that true it is okay to laugh and joke but not to cry I don't know about joke but that it's it's okay to experience joy but that one should be careful not to experience sorrow under that circumstance. Is that so? I guess it's, we could do like a, you know, like and eh, like it could be, it could be false or ding ding. It's true. Is that is there anything to that? I've never heard of it. Never heard I've of never that. heard of that. No. Okay. No. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Next. The, I mean, the, the truth is, we all know as Jews, and that's the first thing we say when we hear about a death, is Baruch Dayan Haemet. Blessed is the God of Truth. So we all trust in him and his and his actions, and we know that whatever happens, we ultimately have to trust in him and his judgments. But at the same time, there are clear laws that pertain to mourning and to uh, and to uh, remembering the deceased. And there is a, the right to cry, and crying can be something which is very therapeutic and necessary. To, sh- to shun that, to move that aside. No, I can't. I've never heard of such a thing. Does it mean, therefore, that one may not laugh? Yes, sometimes people do laugh. Yeah. I know people who that's the way they get it out. They do laughter somehow. That's that's the cathartic way to them. Well, before I get to the next question, and and uh, let me give out the number for folks to call in this discussion uh, called the Jewish Show of Why with Rabbi. Joseph Isaac Korf, we're talking about anything that might be on your mind about Jewish ritual, Jewish custom, Judaic thought, you know, those things that maybe raise a question for you. You've always wanted to know, and don't be afraid to ask something that might seem silly. I just asked a question that I guess uh, doesn't isn't isn't rooted in any kind of correct understanding. That's why Rabbi Korf is here to help us. The the number is seven one eight three zero three nine zero nine zero nine zero. Pardon me, seven one eight three zero three. 
800-928-9090 to call in. You can also text a question to 917-428-4062. That's 917-428-4062. You can use text or the messaging application WhatsApp, and we'll get that question uh, on the air as well, and you can give your name or keep it anonymous. Okay, Rabbi Korf, the, the, that, that question is kind of related to the next one. Then we'll get a little bit lighter. We're starting off a little bit serious here, but the, the concept that uh, in Judaism you can express uh, sorrow for someone else's pain, but your own you you should not uh, kind of feel you should not lament or not feel sorrow for. Is that true? No, it isn't. Uh, again, no. There is what is what is, what is and this is going back to your first question. Um, the concept of shiva, for example, and it's interesting. Once again, divine providence, you're asking me this because I just had two funerals this past week, this week alone, which is unusual. Um, and one was for somebody who was with me for 30 years and passed away at a very rapid state, in a very rapid state, stage, in a very rapid way from a very rare, rare disease. Um, so it was a very big shock and a very big uh, downfall for many people, including me. But at the same time, the mitzvah, which is a mitzvah of sitting shiva for somebody in your family, that is a Torah commandment, and it doesn't give us a reason specifically. Believe it or not, it's not for the sake of crying, because if it was just crying, it wouldn't give you a specific time. Seven days, no more, not less. The idea is that God gave us this commandment, and this is what we have to do for a dearly departed member of the family. Does it mean, therefore, you must cry during that time? No. Does it mean you can laugh? Yes. It's what ultimately there is the aspect of Shiva to give you time. Mm-hmm. What's the time? The time is as God determined seven days. But and during that time, how you use it and how it makes you feel a best and enables you to overcome it, that's up to you. That's not something Torah mandates how you should exactly show your emotions. That's up to you. Okay, so let's let's do one more before we take our first break and stay on this theme of duality. We've been talking about uh, kind of joy and suffering. Let's let's bring it into the slightly more theoretical realm of the angels and demons. And there is a lot of uh, talk in the in in Jewish commentary in different respects about the roles of angels and demons and in Judaic thought. Give us the quick primer on the roles of of angels and demons in in Jewish uh, thought or Jewish philosophy. The quick primer is that to a I can only talk for Jews is that for a Jew there's nothing to fear from either and nothing to or worry about either. In both cases. They are not, they are only creations of God, just like everything else. They have no power of their own other than what God sends them to do. And therefore, so long as they do what they have to do, they're good. If they don't, then they're done. They don't have anything else to do. The name, the word for angel in Hebrew is malach. But malach doesn't really mean angel. It means messenger, emissary. That means to say that a malach, an angel, is only on a mission to fulfill something that God told him to do, and that's it. He has no other power for anything else. 
is essentially a spiritual robot. That's it. <laughs> a spiritual robot, just carrying out God's command. Exactly. And is the, and the, is the are demons in in Jewish thought uh, uh, th- uh, conceived of as they are in 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 Christian thought as kind of fallen angels, or so. or is that is I that off so. base? No, 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 no. A, uh, a demon, which in Hebrew is called a sh- a shed or a shin dalid, two letters, is two of the letters of God's name shin dalid yud, which is shaddai. Shin Dalit minus the Yud is essentially what we consider to be half man, half angel. It is an incompleted creation. Therefore, it is, so to speak, in a term of them, it is in a place of damnation. It has no, uh, it also cannot do anything of its own other than what it is sent to do, and it's usually sent to do destructive things, uh, punishing things. But so long as you are a good person and you're doing what God wants you to do, then nothing, not an angel or a shindalid, a demon, can have any effect on you, only unless you allow it to, only unless you give it an opening. Interesting. So, so the angel. We're going to take our first break, but just to summarize, the so the angel is a spiritual robot, and the demon is kind of a half angel, half human, not fully formed, therefore uh, condemned to to damnation. We're going to come back. We're going to come. We're going to have one more question. This angels and demons uh, topic. We're talking with Rabbi Joseph Isaac Korf on the why of all of these little quirks and idiosyncrasies of Jewish life and, and Judaism. Don't be afraid to, to ask. i putting myself out there with questions that might sometimes be silly, and I'm Jewish, and I still, most, a lot of this stuff, I'm not, I don't know. So, call into the question, 718-303-9090, or text a question to 917-428-4062. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. That's a that's a great uh, it's a rendition of a song called Imninalu, which was a rendition by Ofra Haza of a Hebrew poem from the 17th century by Rabbi Shalom Shabazi. It was one of the first crossover hits in the global pop music charts from uh, from Israel back, I think as early as the late 70s, but certainly uh, in the 80s. All right, let me get down to business here. Equal footing. With me, Dove Tuzman, is brought to you in part by Mechanical Art Capital. Mechanical Art Capital offers financing to watch collectors and watch dealers from anywhere on the planet. Unlock the cash value of your watch collection, or if you're a dealer, your watch inventory, through Mechanical Art Capital's guaranteed buyback contracts. It's easy. It's fast. For more information, call 833-209-0972. You can get your cash in one to two days. Again, 833-209-0972. Or you can go to mechanicalartcapital.com. One more time to get the cash value of your watch collection or watch inventory if you're a dealer for anything else you may need, inventory purchase, home improvement, whatever it might be, call 833-209-0972. Operators are standing by. 
Back on Equal Footing, I'm Dove Tuzman, and I'm joined here by Rabbi Joseph Isaac Korf. This is the Jewish Show of Why, part one in a series. We're talking about like quirks and idiosyncrasies of Judaism and Jewish life, getting over our embarrassment, asking things we've always wanted to ask, not just for Jewish listeners, for others that may be curious, send in your question, doesn't matter what it is, you don't have to censor, 917-428-4062. If you want to text in a question, we've already got a few, Rabbi. Or you can call 718-303-9090. Last question on angels and demons in Jewish belief, Rabbi. And I'm going to ask if you don't mind, since the rabbi is in Florida and I'm in New York, he's obviously on the phone, I'm in the studio. If you could speak a little closer to the mic, Rabbi, that would be great. I'm being told by my uh, sound engineer. Okay, so I've heard that human beings are actually considered to be higher in like the spiritual hierarchy than angels in Jewish philosophy. Is that true? Yes, it is. Not only higher, but that's the whole reason that God created all the universes, including this one, and all other spiritual ones are created for this one. So everything we do, human beings, and within the human beings, within the human uh, uh, world, the Jewish people who are the core center, as it were, of the world, Whatever we do has an effect, like a wave, like waves from a little pebble. Okay, so is, is the essence of that? Sorry to interrupt. Is the essence of that that because the human has the free will, they're higher than the angel? As that's you said correct. before the break, the angel is like a robot. The, that's why we were given free will because we're created in God's image. And that means we have free will. Got it. Okay. And when we choose to do the right thing, we are being godly. And therefore, we have a, we have something that angels or demons, for sure, do not have. Okay, when I, I just wanted to mention when I said something about demons being in hell. What I meant to say in hell means to say that because they're neither man nor angel, they really have no place. So they're wanderers. They got it. They have no home. They have nowhere to go. Well, let's let's actually segue on that point to the the the, the wandering demons that that don't have a place to go. We have a question here from a listener about the concept of heaven in Judaism, and this is a non-Jewish listener, and he wants to know how the concept of heaven in Judaism contrasts with the Christian understanding. Does Judaism penalize the sinner as harshly as Christianity? So. The Jewish um, punishment is not really punishment. What it is, is cause and effect. In other words, God created everything with, by cause, in a manner of cause and effect. That's how everything is in creation. So if you eat unhealthy things, the effect is that terrible things will happen. Not a punishment, it's just that's the way it is. And if you smoke cigarettes, then such and such will happen. That's not a punishment, it's cause and effect. It's the same way spiritually. The difference is we don't always see the effects of our spiritual actions or inactions. And thus, we don't necessarily correlate the two. So does that, does that mean the concept, effect. the concept of, of heaven and hell or reward and punishment in Judaism is kind of more similar to the concept of karma in Eastern thought around 
you know, we're going to get what's coming to us either way. That's more similar to that than the Christian concept of there being like a, a, a God arbiter who decides later, did you do good? Did you not, you know, heaven for you, I hell for you? Know if you can, I don't know if you can fit it in neatly into that either. And it's not that God is sitting and telling you, you're going to get this if you do this. It's that from the beginning of creation, he created everything in a manner that is cause and effect. And so therefore, he already knew and already instituted within creation from the beginning any possibility of anything physical, material, spiritual that the what that what you do will cause a certain effect, and that's the way it is, and nothing you can do will change it. So, does that mean, Rabbi, that in Jewish thought, that it's it's all preordained, like the entire path no. of the universe universe is preordained, or we can shift the reality over time with our free will? Everything, if you want to call, I think there is, I think we once talked about this in the last time, but I think basically the way you can analyze, you can analogize this in a scientific sense is whether you're traveling through time or is time travel, or, or is time traveling, meaning is time standing still and you're merely, go, merely going from past, present, and future, and therefore the future is there already. The only question is which future? So there you have a choice and a path to take. But all of those futures, whichever future you have, or whichever whichever future you take, all of those future paths are already laid out. That sounds like the premise of various sci-fi movies. It's like, what's that one? Is it Sliding Doors? Where like the, the woman is getting, I think it was the... It's one of the I can't remember is a woman or a man who's going to like try to catch a subway car and in one reality the door closes and, and behind her and the other she can't get in and how her life takes a different path for a time being but then it ends up in the same place it sounds like it sounds like that might have been uh, you know rooted in some sort of Jewish premise. I mean, I'm sure there are many movies that are rooted in Jewish premises. Rabbi, we're going to take a caller before our next break and then and then in our next segment we're going to do. A rapid fire round. I'm going to ask you a little bit light, more lightheartedly, some some quick questions on on Jewish uh, custom. But first, let's see if we can grab this caller on line two. You're on the Jewish show of Why. That's this week's episode of Equal Footing. Welcome. Is that me? Yes, you're on. How are you? Oh, thank you very much. Uh, actually, I have two questions. Um, first of all, is a Jew a Jewish person? Uh, permitted to believe in, to be superstitious or believe in magic. Okay, let's do, sudden, let's do one question at a time. So, okay. uh, Rabbi Korf, can a Jewish person is a Jewish person allowed to be superstition superstitious or believe in magic? This is a really a uh, very difficult uh, to make it to say it clearly is difficult. Maimonides. Uh, clearly excuse all types of superstition. And, and sorry, Rabbi, for, for our listeners' edification, Maimonides is a very famous philosopher, Jewish philosopher from the uh, kind of early Middle Ages, right? 13th, 12th, or 13th century? Correct. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. And he clearly falls on the side of that it and compares it to almost to idolatry. Uh, there are many who do not feel that way or agree with his opinion on this and do allow for certain levels of superstition. Never should it be something that ultimately leads you to decide an important uh, decision in life, but it's something you can take into account, perhaps, as a uh, 
you know, did I did it? Was this the right decision? Okay, this sounds like it was the right decision. That's not the same thing as literally being superstitious. So there, you know, it depends what level of superstition or superstitious person you are. But ultimately, the Torah teaches us that our only real uh, superstition, if you want, that we must have or should have is God himself. He's our only mother. The mother okay, that so we have caller... I'm going to I'm going to take the, the answer to your question can a Jewish person is a Jewish person allowed to be superstitious superstitious or believe in magic as they may be it depends what's your mm-hmm. second what's your second question Okay uh I'm acquainted with one of Rabbi's uh, colleagues I'm not going to mention his name uh who is into the space program and we have a running battle uh Based on the phrase Hashemayim Shemayim Lashem, the Haaretz Natan Levnei Adam. What is your input on this, please? All right, Rabbi, do you want to translate first of all what that is for English-speaking yes. listeners? Yes. Yes. So she quoted a verse from Psalms that the sky is the seat, so to speak, is the domain of God, and the Earth is the seat of man, is where we is the place given to man. Um, and I don't know what her question was or what her debate was, but the Talmud states very clearly what this means because there is another verse that seems contradictory to this, mm-hmm. and that is that it says, To God is this earth and everything within it. So it seems like man has no part of the earth, it's all God. Mm-hmm. So therefore, how do, you, how do you make these two work? And the answer is in a very halachic, simple way. Halachic means, uh, for those listeners who might not be aware, it's, it's referring to Jewish law, Jewish law being halacha. So halachic right. is something referring to that Jewish law. Yeah, go ahead. But there's a very simple answer, and that is that it's teaching us that before we eat anything or smell anything good, anything we want to have benefit from, we must first make a blessing to God. By making the blessing to God, it's the map, it's the way we ask Him permission for using that which He created. Mm. If we don't make the blessing, then it's like so, we're so. It sounds like, and I appreciate the call, the the caller's question line uh, from from line two. She's now she's now dropped, but it sounds like the question has to do with whether it's okay under Jewish law for us to be exploring space. If I understood it correctly, and, you know, she's referring to the space is program. That what she was asking? I think so. Okay. so. Is is it okay or not? There's no. No problem whatsoever. All right. We got the uh, easy answer to that one. Okay, we're going to take another break here on Equal Footing. We're going to be back with Rabbi Joseph Isaac Korf. This episode is called The Jewish Show of Why. It's the first in a series. We're kind of taking a little bit of a lighthearted look, but around serious questions that we might have about Jewish life. doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not. You always wanted to ask about some ritual or custom or belief or superstition. Call us, 718-303-9090, or text a question at uh, 917-428-4062. Rabbi, we've got a bunch of text questions. We have a couple of callers waiting as well. We'll get to them after the break. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. Equal 
Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. Hey, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. I'm joined by Rabbi Joseph Isaac Korf. We're talking about quirks and idiosyncrasies of Jewish life, Judaism, Jewish custom and law. Feel free to join in the conversation. And people Dope. often ask about the music on the program. I just wanted to tell you that's a wonderful uh, choir of traditional Jewish music, all done um you know, without instrumentation, what is it? Acapella, that's the word I'm looking for. The Shira Choir, look them up, S-H-I-R-A. Okay, Rabbi, we have a, cu- a couple callers so waiting. Can I, just answer, can I just answer that woman for one second? I realize now what you said she was asking, and I didn't direct myself to Okay, this was correctly. this was the caller called in before the break asking, referring to right. whether it's okay for, uh, for Jews to kind of endorse the exploration of space. Okay. Go ahead. Right. I just want to say in short, there is nothing wrong with it because not everything they, that, is, that is written does it mean literally. For example, just like it says that the heavens belong to God, it also says, like in the verse that I quoted, that everything in this earth belongs to God and everything within it. Mm-hmm. Yet we live here on this earth and we take space here up on this earth, just like it is permissible to take space up in heaven. It doesn't diminish God. It doesn't diminish his godliness. There's no reason why if there's a possibility to fly into space that you can't fly into space, even though it says that it is the abode of God. So too is this earth also the abode of God as well. Gotcha. P- appreciate the clarification. Uh, I'm into exploring space. Okay, lightning round. So <laughs> lightning round, Rabbi. We're going to go through some some questions, a combination of, of uh, some that uh, that I had and and a bunch that have that have come in as well, and uh, very very quick answers to a lot of these have to do with certain rituals. Okay, what makes a wine? Number one, what makes a wine kosher? What makes a wine kosher is if it's made by religious observant Jews. Nothing else would be would be allowed to be used in Jewish law. Got it. Question number two. Why do men wear their hair long at their temple when they're Orthodox Jews? Which which hair are you talking I think about? they're ta- I think this 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 is a listener's question. I think they're talking about the uh payos, about the the, the, the hair at the um. Oh. Men grow at their at well, the temples and kind of curls down. Sidelocks, the sidelocks, the sidelocks. Okay, sorry. so not all Jews. Yeah, and of course, yes. Wear long, right, not all Jews wear long sidelocks. Some wear it short. The the mitzvah in the Torah is that a Jew should not cut off a certain area of his hair on the side of his temples. 
Uh, there are different, I don't want to get into the minutia, into the uh, weeds over here as to how long or whatever, but they, it's really halakhically almost undiscernible, really, if you want. I don't have long side lots, but there's a certain spot, two spots, one on each side, which should not be cut off or cut lower than the rest of your hair, less than the rest of your hair. Gotcha. Next one. Why can a Jew pray in a mosque but not in a church? Uh, really, a Jew should not pray in either. But if there was no choice and he had to pray in the mosque, not praying in the mosque, but even being in the mosque, there's a huge difference because a mosque is a place where no idolatry is worshipped, no other divinity is worshipped. There is no other sharing of the divine other than God himself, the creator of the world. Whereas in the case of a church, to a Jew, uh, Christianity is, idolatry, because there's a trinity. And to a Jew, there is no such thing as a trinity. It's, to a Jew, it's totally prohibited. That's a place where where trinity is prayed to or worshipped. For a Jew, that's considered idolatry. Okay, so in a church, there are images of uh, Jesus, for it's example. The images, it's the images, but not even, even in those places where there are no images. It really doesn't matter. It's the fact that there is a trinity that is worshipped. Okay. When, the next question, when a, a Jewish man wraps the phylactery around their arm, in Hebrew that would be the tefillin, uh, the, the, they wrap seven times. What's the symbolism? The seven times is only between the elbow and the wrist. Uh, according to many customs, the, there is three wraps prior to that, on the arm. And then there's an additional wrap on the wrist, below the wrist, and around the finger, the hand and the fingers. The seven wraps that are around the arm represent, there's mainly a Kabbalistic re, um, representation for that. You can fulfill the mitzvah of tefillin even without those wraps. Mm. But the wraps are because they represent seven characteristics of God's manifestation as he as he manifests himself in this world, and so therefore we wrap it seven times. Got it. Uh, why can women not be? I'm trying to give you the answers fast. fast. I know this is the lightning. You're doing great. I'm. I, I. I do not envy. These are these are some tough questions. Uh, why can women not become rabbis in certain Jewish sects? That's a little bit of a tough answer to give. We can punt if you want to. If you want to punt ones that are more complex to the to the non lightning round, you can do that. I'll I'll give you their various answers in various levels. Give give us give us one. (laughs) One very simple answer: Um, the mitzvah to study Torah in general is a mitzvah for men, not for not for women. Reason being is because all commandments that are positive commandments from the Torah which are dependent on a, on a certain time span, are obligatory only upon men, not upon women. One of those commandments is the example of that is the mitzvah of studying Torah. And therefore, the mitzvah to study Torah is not obligatory upon women, it's only obligatory upon men. That doesn't mean to say women may not study Torah. They may. But men have the, and when they do, and if they do, they also have to make the blessing on it. Just like they do other mitzvot, which they may not be obligated, and they still make the bracha. Okay, but really, men have the obligation. Related the lightning round. 
related question, then there's only one more in light round, then we'll take a, uh, take a caller. Uh, I've heard that women, that Judaism only goes through women. Does this mean women are holier than men in Judaism? Yes. To a certain extent, yes. 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 All right. And, and uh, we'll, 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 history, by the way, in biblical, in biblical history, in almost all instances where the Jewish people sinned, it was always the men, not the women. The women were innocent, and thus they had special customs, like on Rosh Chodesh, the first day of each month, and other customs which are not applicable to men but only to women, being that they were always loyal to God's command and to his faith. As okay. opposed to the men. I, I said one more, but two more lightning. These, are, I think, should be very easy ones. Why do you break a glass at the end of a Jewish wedding? It represents the destruction of the temple. Everything that we do in the most joyous occasions, we must do something to remember the temple's destruction, mm. and that the Messiah is not here, and that we are still in exile. Mm. We're back to the duality of uh, joy and sorrow. And the last one... Why do you immerse silverware in dirt in order to make it kosher? It's not always done that way. It's only done under certain instances that way. But in general, if it's done that way, which is not always the case, the idea is to ensure that the taste that is within, that has been swallowed into the walls of the vessel, not just silverware, any kind of utensil, is removed before you can use it for something else, such as if it was used for meat, that you should now be able to use it for daily or the opposite, or be able to kosherize it altogether from a non-kosher use. But in that case, it is only under certain instances that you can use the method of putting it into dirt. That's not the general way it's a method of purification. Okay, before we go to the break, let's take a couple of quick callers who've been very patient. Uh, line one, you're on the air. Is that me? It is. First of all, I'd like the clarification. According to Jewish custom, it's not Kabbalistic. That's another side. He's doing Kabbalistic seven times on the arm. It's for a verse. to God today. Seven words, seven verses. Seven words to the verse, seven wrappings around the arm. Number two, women also should study because they have to study to know what to do. How can they fulfill a commandment, keep the Sabbath day, etc.? So women are connected to Torah. They may not have the strong obligation, according to Maimonides, like, uh, like men, but they have to know what to do, so they have to study. And the putting in the earth, there's nothing that goes into the earth. The only exception is a knife. There's only one thing, because a knife has ridges on it, and by pushing them in and out, you can get those ridges. You can't do that in a regular place. Other ways of koshering are boiling it up, etc. You get gotcha. to kosher a vessel. Great clarifications. You know, it, it, and it's it's completely valid for, for those listeners, uh, well, for those who are Jewish or non-Jewish, to know that that Judaism is a journey also of, of self-discovery and interpretation. And part one of the reasons we want to do this series is to is to show that, is that there are lots of interpretations. Sometimes interpretations are uh, universally, uh, are, 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 there's a consensus or even there's universality. On Sometimes there are different perspectives. So we're getting a little echo on line one. So I dropped that caller. Thank you for your, thank you for your call. And line three, you're on the air. Uh, good evening, Dove. Stan. 
How are you, my friend? I want to apologize. Last week, Stan. No, no, no. Hey, do not long. apologize, though. Please. <laughs> You're on all the time. I'm, I'm part of the family. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you, sometimes you get mad. You, you hang up on family. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let, me, let me get it in quick. One, there are two things. The absolute most pure and most intimate is the yiska at home with one's family when you light the candles. You're, you're with your family in the candles, and it's you in the candles, and you say the prayer for the dead. It is the most intimate and most holy as far as I could. I don't need the synagogue. That, to me, is one of the greatest uh, attributes. You're talking and about lighting the candles on Friday absolute. evening, sundown. Well, no, no, I don't. Excuse me. Uh, let me be frank. I'm not very religious. I light them only on Yom Kippur. I see. Okay. Uh, but that, to me, is, to me, the most important time. And I remember my family, and there were eight or nine or ten candles, even my dog. And uh, I pray, and I pray. I don't pray that much, but I do. The other thing is the worst thing, the worst ritual in in Judaism. Oh, sorry, you were, talking, is, you were talking about the Iskra candles. You were talking about yeah, memorial candles. Yeah, that's one of the great, yeah, right. right? That's one of the greatest, the most pure. The worst is when we as babies have to have a surgical procedure, and. That is, uh, right. to me, the Stan, most... Stan, I, I have been wanting for a year to do a show <laughs> on circumcision. And I believe I haven't, it is. I haven't, no pun intended, but I haven't had the balls to do it yet. Uh, but it's uh, it, it would be a fascinating <laughs> That's another show. Tradition. That's another Jewish tradition. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when you do it, I'll call. You know uh, that. But I think those two, diametrically opposed, they are rituals. One is wonderful. One is obscene. Whether the rabbi thinks so, that's his situation. But I, that's what I believe. Anyway, good yeah, luck. As a, always. Thanks, Dan, for the call. I love how you always bring up these uh, sensitive uh, subjects. Yeah, you know sometimes we'll do a show, like I said on, on uh, like foreskin NB and the whole di- the whole thing. Di- <laughs> rabbi, we can't, we, we're going to go to our, our next break, but I can't resist. Tell tell us, for, especially for non-Jewish listeners, why are are, are uh, Jewish boys circumcised? Um, it's because it has to do with his his belief or his thoughts of purity or not, neither with mine. I really don't know why, other than the fact that God told us to do so, mm-hmm. and he said that this is his covenant with us and the Jewish people. Period. End of discussion. There is no other reason. He didn't give us a reason. There are many Kabbalistic explanations about it, there are many communic explanations, but it has nothing to do with the core mitzvah itself, which is a fundamental mitzvah for every male from the age of eight days and on, as God commanded it. And as a matter of fact, for, for, non, for non-Jewish listeners, or maybe secular Jewish listeners, what is a mitzvah? Mitzvah is a commandment and a binding to God. And uh, as a matter of fact, the Talmud even states that why don't women have a circumcision, a Brit, and the answer that Thomas gives us, and this goes back to what you asked about the holiness of women, is the fact that they are already born circumcised. Mm. Meaning they don't I've never heard that. to be circumcised on this earth. They are circumcised by God himself. So therefore, there is, it shows you that special connection women have already with God that men don't possess, 
and that they need to have done here on this earth. Okay. I just want to also mention the two things that the previous caller mentioned. Let's, let's, let's that save that for a sec for after the break, Rabbi, just to stay okay. on schedule. We're talking to Rabbi Joseph Isaac Korf. This episode of Equal Footing is entitled The Jewish Show of Why. And really getting into it, there's, you know, some lighthearted questions, some pretty heavy ones. After the break, the rabbi was gracious enough to do a lightning round, a bunch of questions on different uh, rituals and beliefs. We're going to tackle some other like heavy subjects. The the Messiah. Are, are Jews waiting for the Messiah? And, and how do we know when the Messiah has come? Rules of intimacy and even the Holocaust. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. <laughs> I'm your beauty, you're my beast Welcome to the Middle East Tel Aviv, ya Habibi, Tel Aviv I just wanted to let that song go on You could have listened to that for the entirety of it Omer Adam, Tel Aviv Alright, segue from talking about circumcision Here we go, Manhattan Medical Manhattan Medical's been a key sponsor for Equal Footing uh, for some time now. And Manhattan Medical, which is based in Manhattan but available to folks anywhere, you can do virtual sessions. We'll talk about what you'd be calling in about. And Manhattan Medical has a special message for men and their partners, and it's about erectile dysfunction. This is a difficult subject to talk about, but it's essential to talk about and essential to deal about. It's essential in your life to be able to have enjoyable sex. Manhattan Medical utilizes the new effective gains wave therapy. It achieves excellent results. It's been taking off everywhere. There's no expensive blue pills. It's non-invasive. It's surgery-free. It's painful. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> it's painless. It is not painful. It is painless. With Manhattan Medical, <laughs> there are no side effects and for most patients, wonderful results. Call 888-ED-CURE-9 to hear about Manhattan Medical's Gains Wave Therapy. That's 888-ED-CURE-9. And let's spell that out for you. Let's put the, the numbers to that. 888-332-8739. That's 888-332-8739. If you mention that you heard about Manhattan Medical's Gains Wave Therapy for Erectile Dysfunction, on equal footing, you get a free consultation. That's a $200 plus value. So call. You don't have to be in Manhattan or the New York area to take advantage of Manhattan Medical's Gains Wave ED therapy. As many folks know, have been listening to the program for some time. A close friend of mine who's in his mid-80s is the one who brought this sponsor to the program. He's had terrific results with the Manhattan Medical in uh, in in getting back an enjoyable sex life. If he if he can do it, you can do it. Call now eight 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 three three two eight seven three nine. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on all right, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. I'm joined by Rabbi Joseph Isaac Korf. We're talking about quirks and idiosyncrasies in Jewish life and Judaism. Rabbi, I'm going to uh, just make the executive decision, since we only have 10 minutes left, to dive into some of these other subjects and leave behind what we've already discussed, if that's okay. Number one, there are a number of questions that we've uh, gotten here in text, and I had even some prepared in my notes about the Messiah. What is the core Jewish belief around the Messiah, and what are the signs of when the Messiah is coming? 
The core Jewish belief is that the Messiah is a descendant from King David, a direct descendant, and he will possess himself certain attributes and will there and will become, will be crowned king, as well as prophet and teacher of Torah. He will possess all three of those things, and that will be similar to Moses himself, who will, who will be the soul Part of his soul will be the soul of the Messiah. And he will be a man of flesh and blood. He will be so great that he will be like his father Solomon, where all nations of the world congregated around him, or will congregate around him, surround him and protect him and the Jewish people, will want to serve him and serve and protect the Jewish people. Those who will remain enemies will be brought to, will be vanquished. And then ultimately, he will bring peace, harmony, and complete manifestation of divine, uh, divine light. Okay, so this, the, Messiah, the Messiah is a man in Jewish belief. Man of flesh and blood, like you and I. Okay, well, but not, not a woman in Jewish belief. Excuse me? Meaning not a woman in Jewish belief. No, no, okay. no, no. And, and, and when the Messiah comes, I've heard that the dead are brought back to life. Is that, is that the case in Jewish philosophy or Jewish if belief? That is the case. We don't know exactly when that will, will, will occur. It could, it could occur years after his arrival. Um, we're not clear about when that will happen, but there will be, and it's one of the 13 articles of faith, as codified by Maimonides, that there is going to be a resurrection, a physical resurrection, uh, where soul and body will once again be reunited and walk upon the earth. Okay, let's switch gears. Bunch of questions about intimacy. What are the primary rules around physical intimacy in Jewish law? That's impossible to answer. You're going to have to be more specific than that. What are the rules around uh, physical intimacy between men and women in Jewish law, in summary? Between husband and wife? Let's go with husband and wife. Okay. I'll go with husband and wife, because essentially it is not permissible if they're not, if they're not husband and wife. There are different variations or stringencies, but generally the physical intimacy is not supposed to take place until a marriage between a husband and a wife. As to what is permitted, essentially everything is permitted, so long as it is done consensually with husband and wife, privately, modestly, to the extent possible, and within their own, uh, uh, within their own, you know, four court, four walls, and uh, that's basically the rules of, of, of consensual uh, sex between a husband and a wife. It may never be non-consensual, it may not even be done between a wife or a husband if one of them is drunk, if the wife is drunk, or she's sleeping. Uh, it must be always done in a consensual manner. Gotcha. We could probably do a whole show on that in, in the future. Kind of hopping yeah, around here, but we have so many good questions that have come in. So here's, here's another one. Why are there certain sects amongst observant Jews who seem to not believe that the state of Israel should exist at this time in history? It's based on a, a statement made by the Talmud where God made uh, made an oath, a binding oath, that certain things won't happen 
until the Messiah comes, amongst which is one of them that the state of Israel, the homeland of the Jewish people, would not be returned to them until the Messiah would come and recapture it again. However, it is clear that if it happened, regardless, for whatever reason, that means that it only happened because God allowed it to happen. doesn't mean that it is the full state of Israel, homeland already of the Jewish people. It is not. Because until the Messiah comes, and until Jewish law is the law of the land, which it is not now, uh, it is not really considered the Jewish homeland in its, at its fullest. Here's, a qu- here's another question that's kind of related to that. Uh, how do Jews see Jesus? Was he a prophet of any sort, or does Jewish belief consider him just a normal man? It can, they consider him totally a normal man, and more, as far as Judaism is concerned, he's really considered a heretic as well. I see. That that sounds like topic for another show as well. Let's let's uh, yep. let's do one heavy one and then end on kind of a positive note because we've only got a few minutes left. Um, the heavy one has to do with the Holocaust, and there there are a number of of texts here that have that have come in on that. So I'm gonna tr- I'm gonna try to condense it into one. What is the Jewish philosophical explanation for the Holocaust having happened? My explanation will be no better than what the Lubavitcher Rebbe talked about many times, and that is that there really is no explanation. On the contrary, a Jew has a right to ask, to demand, and to cry out to God in in protestation against what happens, and to demand that it never happen again, and ask why it's your right. However, on the other hand, we also realize, as I already mentioned earlier on, we always know that Baruch Dayan Ha'emet, that no matter what happens in this world, good or bad, everything is by divine providence. It is God's purview to decide why he did, why he, what he did, and why he did it. And we will never know the reasons why. That's but a mystery. we will, it is a mystery, and we, we have to live with that mystery, but know that it's God's mystery. And so, therefore, we can accept it and go on further, and we can continue to ask. Last, and we can continue to demand. Last question but we still here. Have to ultimately accept. Yes, and an incredibly different, difficult thing to accept. And I think one of the core philosophical yes. questions of our age, I'm the the eldest grandchild of Holocaust survivors, and it was one of the core questions in our family and remains to this day. Okay, Rabbi Korf, you've been so great on the show. Thank you for your graciousness and just kind of responding to all these questions that have come. Let, let's finish with this one. Uh, this is a listener who says that uh, she has a nine-year-old son who is into threes, and she wants to know how to succinctly, succinctly express the three primary rules of Shabbat, or the Jewish Sabbath, to her nine-year-old son. What are the three primary rules of Shabbat? Um, she said three primary rules. There are the following are the primary yeah, we rules. Only, we only have 30 One seconds, is, so... <laughs> okay, so there's two, really two main primary rules. One is Zacharit Yom HaShabbat to remember it and to keep it holy, which revol- involves certain positive commandments, and Shamor at Yom HaShabbat, which means to observe not to transgress the negative commandments and to keep it holy. Those are the two basic premises from which there are many laws that flow, and that's the way you keep Shabbat. 
Okay, and one of those negative commands is, is not to work, correct, on, on Shabbat, which goes from well, Friday, Sunday, Saturday, Sunday. Well, what is what that means? Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. Well, what does work not work mean? That's right. That'll be a topic for another another show. Rabbi Korf, thank yes. you so much for joining us on Equal Footing. We're going to close here with the, about 30 seconds of a, of a, a beautiful uh, rendition of Avinu Malkenu. Before we go, in five seconds, Rabbi, what is Avinu Malkenu? Our Father, our King. Amen. Simply translated. <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi. There was, there was no other king besides you.